Work is no longer just about productivity and metrics. It's about people. And when we focus on positivity, communication, belonging, and development, the numbers take care of themselves. This is Work Human Radio, where we talk to authors, researchers, and business leaders about the latest trends making work more human around the world. Here's your host, Mike Wood. Welcome back to another Work Human Radio. My name is Mike Wood. I am your host, and I want to thank you for listening to our special coverage in celebration of Black History Month. We recently went on location to Washington, D.C. to talk to some great folks about what it means to struggle for equality and to be recognized. And one of the places that we went to was the National Museum of African American History and Culture. It is right outside of the Washington Monument. It is one of the Smithsonian's newest museums. And if you have a chance to go down to D.C., please, please go in there and check it out. They have five floors of exhibits and Tremendous amount of history and artifacts are in there. I was lucky enough to talk to Deborah Tulani Salahuddin, who is a museum specialist with the National Museum of African American History and Culture, one of the people that helped put it together. And we talked a lot about what the museum has in terms of artifacts and objects. And each one of these tells a story. Tamara Raspberry and I, as we're walking through the museum, you go into a side corner and you're able to see Emmett Till's casket. And there are video clips of his mother talking about why she held an open casket and how that helped move the civil rights movement forward. And it's extremely powerful. So listen to the first part of our interview with Miss Sulani Dean and stay tuned because there is a particular story about a special artifact that means a lot to her that's coming up in next week's episode. Why don't you just tell me a little bit about yourself and how you got involved in the museum? Okay, my name is Deborah Talani Salahuddin, and I'm a museum specialist here at the museum in the Office of Curatorial Affairs. And I've been working with the museum for 10 years now. So I began at the conceptual phase and worked through the design development phase, and I was very happy to be here for the grand opening. And it was very exciting to see all the work that we had done on paper come to fruition in this beautiful edifice that you see here on the National Mall. I came to the museum with experience in museum work as well as in higher education. So I was able to actually merge dual careers here at the museum because in academia, I taught African-American literature. And now doing curatorial work, I'm able to integrate my knowledge and expertise about literature into exhibitions. So I do a lot of collecting around literature in addition to other material culture elements. That's fantastic. Can you tell me a little bit about the opening of the museum? The museum, we have an exhibit downstairs called Century in the Making. Because in 1915, there were efforts to establish a national monument on the mall, well, in Washington, D.C., to recognize the achievements of African-Americans who had served in the military. So that was the original idea. And then it evolved into something much broader, a national edifice to recognize the achievements of African-Americans in all fields 
and to use the African-American experience to examine American history, to use that experience as a lens, as we always say. Mm-hmm. So I've been working on a bunch of pieces about the struggle for equality just mm-hmm. everywhere. And can you talk a little bit about the efforts that went into putting this place together? Well, the museum came into existence through legislation that was passed in 2003 under the Bush administration. The bill was sponsored by Congressman John Lewis of Georgia, and he was senator Sam Brownback of Kansas. So that's how legislation came into existence. Then Lonnie Bunch became the director of the museum and pulled together monumental teams of designers and architects and curatorial experts and public relations experts and just the entire staff of people He always says that we began as a museum of no, because when we started, we had none of that, no staff, no building, and no collection. So under his fierce leadership, we were able to pull all that together. We had our offices right across here on the National Mall, where we still have some offices in the Capitol Gallery building. And so we worked from there just a stone's throw away as the museum was being constructed. We broke ground in 2012, and we opened, celebrated the grand opening in 2016. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. So it's the, it's the newest museum. Yes, it's the newest Smithsonian Museum. Mm-hmm. So as you look back on your struggle to get this created and to put everything together. And now you can look back and see the people coming in. You just talk about how that feels. You have so many aspects of African-American history under one roof. We have six floors and 11 galleries, and we still don't cover the entire depth and breadth of our experience. But we cover a great deal of it. And it's a celebratory experience It can be painful because the United States has a very tortured past, very tortured history as it relates to racial violence, slavery, segregation, and issues that we're still dealing with in contemporary times. And so you're going to learn about all of that here. So it can be very painful, but there's much to celebrate So it can be very joyful as well. The culture galleries where you will be introduced to traditions in music, dance, theater, comedy, visual art, literature, all of these wonderful forms of cultural expressions. These are ways that we celebrate and these are things that we can celebrate. And also just the notion of achieving and overcoming all of the barriers that were perpetually erected to halt our progress. And that makes you want to celebrate too. So even when you're looking at the ugly side of the history, you're still inspired because you understand the resilience that we had to have, the knowledge, the skill, the zest for life to live in the face of all of the adversity. 
I'm curious about how you decide what to show in the museum. Oh, wow. Well, and that's an excellent question. There are just aspects of African-American history, American history, that have to be told because they're so monumental. They're monumental events, such as the marches that occurred. They're monumental figures in history, men and women and children. And so the story of Emmett Till had to be told. The story of people associated with the civil rights movement. The story of those who departed from traditional ways of thinking and being in the African-American community. So people associated with Islam or Judaism as it relates to religion or the Black Panthers or other groups that may have been deemed radical, the Nation of Islam, all of these traditions had to be included because it was just so integral to our experience in showing that diversity. So we want it to be inclusive in that regard. There are objects also that drive what can be included in a museum, and that's very critical. A museum is a place primarily to highlight artifacts. And so if artifacts exist that tell a particular story, then we're going to acquire that artifact and tell that story. There are some stories that are very important in history, but there may not be any material culture available to show it. And so either we don't tell it or we might just use a graphic or maybe a photograph, but the display may not be as big as one would think for such a significant story. So just to tell our listeners kind of how they can see some of the work that you've done here and also online, can you just talk about how to access all of this? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so online is nmaahc.si.edu. And we have wonderful, wonderful information on our website. We have collection stories about the objects that we collected and how we came about finding them and background things that people are sometimes interested in knowing. You can access our collection. Our collection is constantly being digitized. So you can see the objects, who donated them, whether they were purchased, um, all the details when they were created, what they're made of, how they're being used, whether they're on display or in storage. Because you know, Only a small percentage, I think about 10% of our entire collection is on display. But we use our collection in different ways, not just in exhibitions, but in publications as well. And we digitize our objects and use them in different ways. And of course, in addition to going to the website, People have to plan to come and spend two and three (laughs) days in the museum. The dwelling time for this museum is pretty high. On average, people will come and spend six to eight hours in the museum. (laughs) And then we have many, many repeat visitors, too, because, as you know, the museum is very dense with information and objects and graphics, and you cannot see it all in one day. So 
we always invite visitors to come back to have repeat visits so that they can uh, see everything that's here. I'm incredibly overwhelmed with the amount of the stuff that's here and that's just along the mall. I don't know how you get to see everything. <laughs> right, right. It's a lot to see. Like I said, six floors, 11 galleries, starting down in the basement or underground. We have the Slavery and Freedom Gallery. And a lot of times people ask, do we start with slavery because we call it slavery and freedom. But no, we go back to Africa, the West African experience in particular. And then from slavery and freedom, we have the segregation era gallery. And then you go up to 1968 and beyond. So that goes all the way through the inauguration of Barack Obama. And those are all below ground. And then the above ground, you have the second floor, which houses our library, our family history center, a wonderful interactive wall, which has many of the objects that are on display. It's a touch screen. And so you can enlarge it and flip through pages. If it's a book, you can literally flip through the pages. Yeah. There may be a media piece to accompany it. You can hit it, listen to the media piece that accompanies the object. It's a very dynamic wall. It's one of my favorite pieces in the museum. And then there's also something that young people really enjoy. And it's a stepping floor where we introduce this whole concept of stepping among fraternities. And it's correlation to the South African boot dance, for example. And so it's instructive. People are able to get on the floor and look at the instructors on the screen and follow along to learn how to step. Mm-hmm. Very cool. So all that's on the second floor. Then the third floor has four galleries, the Making a Way Out of No Way Gallery. That is a exhibit. The title of it reflects a theme that really resonates throughout the entire museum because we were always making a way out of nowhere, whether it was down in slavery and freedom, whether it was during segregation, whether it was in the contemporary period of 1968 and beyond. And today we're still making a way out of no way. You know, this museum is a way out of no way, having to raise $500 million to get it open and beginning with no money. And as I mentioned before, no collection, none of that. So we made a way out of no way, even in building the museum. Also on that floor is our military gallery, sports gallery, and a wonderful gallery called Power of Place. And so that's the fourth floor. And then the final fifth floor is the culture floor. And I mentioned that before, all the cultural expressions are there. And that's, I think, probably the most vibrant because it even includes food ways. I don't think I mentioned that before. So how African-Americans created delicacies and how mm-hmm. culinary arts influence the American food ways. So everything from food to the issue of colorism is depicted on that floor. Colorism within the African-American community. So very, very vibrant floor. So I personally, I've done a lot of family history stuff in the past couple of years. Can you talk about the family history resource? Because I think if it's what I think it is, it's a tremendous resource Mm -hmm. for people out there. Yes, it is. You can come and begin 
searching your roots, your family roots. We have staff who will assist at least first half an hour to an hour with you trying to uh, find your descendants. And right now we are getting ready to, in fact, next month, open an exhibit within the Family History Center on the activist, writer, and first woman to serve as a priest in the Episcopalian Church, Pauli Murray. That's her name. And she published a seminal work on African-American genealogy called Proud Shoes. And so this is even before Roots in 1956. She published that book, Proud Shoes. And so she looks at her own family lineage in that particular book. So we're going to be highlighting her there. And I would be totally remiss if I didn't mention our special exhibits gallery. It's a temporary gallery. We usually have exhibits there from six to eight months or more. And we recently opened our World War One exhibition. And it is just a dynamic exhibition that looks not just at military, but it's divided into three parts, before the war, during the war, and after the war. So before the war, we examined the state of Black America, really the state of America, and specifically African-Americans' social, economic, political disposition during that period. And the arguments that prevailed among African-American leaders about what the role of African-Americans should be in the war. Should we support the war as a people who are disenfranchised and marginalized and maligned? Why should we go and fight for this country? So there were two opposing views, one expressed by W.E.B. Du Bois, who supported African-Americans going to war, and one by A. Philip Randolph, who said, Wilson is suggesting that this war is about making the world safe for democracy. I would rather make Georgia safe for the Negro. (laughs) So then we move into the military component. And then the post-war, well, we wanted to highlight the cultural impact. So that's a big part of the post-war. What was the cultural impact? A lot of people know that jazz, for example, Mm -hmm. is very popular in Europe today. But they don't know how that came to be. And World War I had a lot to do with that because James Reese Europe, who was a band leader and military man, military band leader, helped to introduce jazz to Europe during World War One. So the band played there and the European musicians, the French musicians, they loved the sound. They just thought it was different but authentic. And they liked the fact that it was authentic. And they even tried to emulate it. And for a while, it was clear that they couldn't get the exact sound (laughs) of those African-Americans coming from New Orleans and Mississippi and places like that. But they continued. They continued to play. They continued to practice. And it just continued to catch on. And then the musicians traveled beyond France to other countries all around Eastern Europe and Western Europe, and people came out and supported them. And so today, jazz remains very popular throughout Europe. So we look at the cultural impact, which is so significant. And also, 
I want to say that going back into that center part during the war, a lot of people don't realize that World War I led to a lot of inventions and advancements in medicine because facial reconstruction, for example. Because during World War I, they built these trenches mm-hmm. and the soldiers would be in the trenches and when they would lift their heads up, bullets would be flying. And so a lot of them were gravely injured, facial injuries. And so they had to have facial reconstruction. And that's when advancements in that area began to evolve. If you want to see business leaders, culture keepers, and industry experts come together to share the latest research and ideas for making work more human, you need to be at Work Human Live in 2020, May 11th through the 14th in San Antonio. Visit workhuman.com to see the full lineup of speakers and reserve your spot in the number one conference of 2020. 